0: This is one of our last sermons in our Life Together series. It's been a really, really sweet last couple of weeks together just talking about how we can live like the community together that God wants us to be. We are saved by a supernatural savior and he creates a supernatural community that's unlike anything we've ever been a part of. And it takes hearing these texts about how we're supposed to live and applying them by the power of the Holy Spirit To become like that. The title for our sermon this evening is The Art of Correction. I preached a few weeks ago about the more formal process of church discipline when sin sadly gets out of hand and the whole church has to act out of love. But far many times, before anything ever gets to that point, Christians, all of us will be helped by one another... Through words of correction. And so many more words of correction will be given. In a healthy church. By the members to one another. Rather than from the pastors to the members. And so this is a special sermon for life together. Because this is something that as pastors we need this whole church to get. Because we can't do this. Spirit's plan is to use all of us together to bring correction in a healthy, life-giving way. I remember a time right after I graduated from college. For a lot of people, it's a little bit of a depressing time when you finally out to the real world and you realize it's not as exceptional as you were thinking it might be. And started, I got out of the Christian bubble and I started letting loose a little bit, making some unwise decisions committing some sins. And I remember at one point, my good friend Peter sat down on the couch right next to me. This is 10 years ago. And I remember it clearly. He said to me, Ross, man, I'm just disappointed in the way you acted last night, what you did. I know you to be a man of discipline and you lived without self-control. And by God's grace, I was able to receive that word. And I still remember it. it. sticks out to me this day as a gift that I received from my friend Peter. So now we're going to look at the Word of God and ask, what does Proverbs have to say about this life-giving work of offering correction and reproof to one another? Our text is in Proverbs chapter 9. If you actually have a paper Bible, please, please open it up, or, or your phone, please open it up. Our text today actually comes at the very end of the first section of Proverbs. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, you see how it says the Proverbs of Solomon. That means it's starting a new section. So our verses today are at the end of the first section, the first part of Proverbs. And in this first section, Solomon, the author of this book, contrast the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. Those are the only two ways someone can live a life. Wisely or foolishly. They couldn't be more divided from one another. There isn't three ways or four ways to live. There's only two ways. And the end of those ways couldn't be more different. The end of wisdom is life the end of foolishness is death. And all throughout Proverbs 1 through 9, Solomon illustrates the way of wisdom and the way of folly with two women Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And his point is that, like a young man pursues a woman, every single one of us is pursuing. Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly each and every day. It's never a day you're not pursuing one of these ladies. And every day you're drawing closer to God and closer to life. Or closer to judgment and closer to death. And we see these two ladies right here in Proverbs chapter 9. Verses 1 through 6. Solomon talks about Lady Wisdom. You look at verse 1. She has built her house, and has hewn her seven pillars. And then at the end of our passage, in verses 13 through 18, Solomon talks about Lady Folly. Verse 13, the woman is loud, she's seductive and knows nothing. Verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. There's a house of life and happiness that Lady Wisdom is building. A house of death and destruction that Lady Folly is building. And right between these two ladies, we have our verses today. Verses 7 through 12. And what this flow is showing us is that the way that we respond to correction is one thing showing us what lady we're living with according to and what lady we're following after. So let's take a look at verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So a scoffer is someone who Solomon considers to be the foolish person. And if you don't know what scoffing is, Scoffing is when you respond to someone with bitterness or mocking. So if one of you were to correct me and come to me and say, Pastor Ross, when you did this, it was really hurtful to me. And my response, if my response was, well, boo-hoo. Why are you whining? That would be scoffing. And that would make me a fool. And I should be fired. So whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So there are certain people where you will try to correct them, and they will retaliate. You will receive abuse from people when you correct people. It is a hazardous occupation to correct people. We're going to see that it's a loving occupation that we're called to, but it is a hazardous occupation. And the reason is, is because it provokes wicked responses. So, being wise and being a fool is not a matter of knowing. It's a matter of doing. It's a heart-level moral issue. And there is a righteous and an unrighteous way to respond to correction. And as... We correct people. Sometimes Christians, sometimes unbelievers. People will respond in unrighteous ways. And I'm sure some of you have felt this before. Where you go to someone and you want to help them and you want to point something out in their life. And you walk away feeling like you just got beat up. You just got hurt. You just got kicked. You might not be sure what exactly happened. Well, this is what Solomon says will happen from time to time. So we want to ask ourselves, what is the point of this verse? What is it getting at? When I first read it, I thought it was saying, pay attention to who you correct. Don't correct foolish people because they'll hurt you. Only correct wise people because they'll receive it. That's what I thought it meant at first. But as I read more, I actually think it's saying something different. So let's look at verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So it just says there's two paths. There's two ways to respond to correction. And what these verses are saying, it's not, I don't think it's so much about the person giving correction, but about the person receiving correction. In other words, it's saying that the way that you respond to correction is showing whether or not you're a wise person or a foolish person. These verses are meant to diagnose our hearts. And ask yourself right now, how do you respond to correction? Because the way you respond to correction when other people bring it to you is showing what is in your heart and whether or not you're pursuing lady wisdom or lady folly. I can just speak for myself right now and say that when I receive correction, it feels like a threat to me. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It feels like a threat. And when you're threatened, you automatically have a flight or fight response. So I don't have to tell my brain to start doing this when someone's bringing correction to me and people bring correction to me. One strategy is I can immediately try to get away from the person. Ignore that person. Stop talking to that person. Cancel them out. Are you you a person that tends to flee from other people who bring correction? This is a way of more subtly refusing correction, rejecting correction, is to flee from the person bringing it to you. Maybe you know when you've committed a sin, you hide it from other people. Maybe if someone asks you a question about it, you even lie in order to hide this from them, in order to avoid a word of correction. Flight is one way that we avoid correction, one way that I avoid correction, and act like a scoffer or a fool. Another response to threats that we experience is fighting back. I got hit, I'm going to shoot you back. The first way this can be is you can try to undermine the message itself. You can disagree with it, disregard it, tell them they're wrong. Or more insidiously, I think what we try to do is shoot the messenger. Someone brings correction, and immediately our minds try to find something wrong with that person. Something they've done wrong to us, something they've done wrong to others. So we don't have to receive that word of correction from them. We'll often try to shine the spotlight back at them, accuse them of hypocrisy in order to disregard what they're saying to us. You see, all of us have these urges. It's just part of our flesh. The question is not whether your heart will want to respond this way. It's whether you indulge and you do, or if you fight against it and respond in a more humble way, a more godly way a more life-giving way. You see, there there is a different way to respond to correction rather than fight or flight. There is a different way to respond to people when they're bringing correction to you. As we look at verse 8 and now verse 9, give correction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man And he will increase in learning. We need to have a mind shift. The mind shift happens when we realize that when someone's bringing correction to us, church, it's a gift. This is a gift someone else is giving to you. This is something that's going to make you wiser, this is something that's going to increase in learning. And when you start to recognize this, you actually start to love the person who brings correction to you. Isn't that a sweet thing? What if the way that we responded to correction in our churches, we just started hugging the person who brought it? <laughs> that would be a sweet, sweet thing. In the correction that I've received, In the times God has humbled me and allowed me to receive it without undermining it, I have never failed to benefit from it. Ever. Including the times correction was brought to me in an unrighteous or unwise way. Even when the correction came in an unwise or unrighteous way, I still benefited from it. I have had people bring correction to me, I felt insulted by it, I felt it was unfair, I felt it was rude, I felt it was overbearing. And guess what? There was still something in their correction that I needed to hear and that was good for my soul. And I would not have been able to receive it if I immediately fought back because of the manner in which it was brought to me. There have been other times where I've received correction from others where I didn't think it was even right there's still a chance for me to humble myself. say, maybe this brother or sister received something that I've missed. No matter how poorly someone brings criticism to you, if you are willing to humble yourself and receive it, you will benefit from it. Hmm. You cannot help but be blessed by criticism. Now, there is a category for you want to correct someone who brings bad criticism to you. Eventually, you're to, they need to know that they need to grow. But one sweet practice would be just wait. Don't do it right away. Do it in a separate conversation. Just see what you can receive from someone who's bringing you correction. See if there's anything you can affirm from the correction they brought you. So that when you go back to the person, you can say, Hey, you were right about this, but I thought your manner was off in this way. What do you think about that? And see how you can grow and the person who brought you correction can grow. Now, a lot of us, especially in this Midwestern culture, feel hesitant to bring correction to other people. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. And yet, since it's a gift, you are withholding something good from your brother or sister if you don't bring correction. They will grow from it, they will benefit from it, And just as a parent who withholds discipline from a child is keeping from that child something that child needs, we are keeping other brothers and sisters from something they need if we know they need a word of correction and we refuse to give it to them. It can be a word of wisdom for how maybe they're not living sinfully, but they could live more wisely. But more often than not, and I think more in the context of these verses. Especially if you see a brother and sister wandering into a sin and they don't seem aware of it or they're not turning from it. Friends, we must talk with them in order to care for one another well. Just listen to this verse from James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back his sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you could do that for someone, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it hurts your relationship, even if you don't want to say it, wouldn't you still do that if you love them? Church, one way that love looks like is humbly, humbly, And clearly offering criticisms and corrections to our brothers and sisters. And one word on that is correction and criticism should come when it's needed. But encouragement should be the rule. Encouragement should be the rule. When someone doesn't know you love them, they're much less likely to receive your criticism from you. If someone is confident that you care about them, when they bring that word to you, their heart will be open to receive it. When Peter was correcting me all those years ago, I knew that brother loved me. I knew that he did. And so I was just ready to say, you're right, brother. I am in sin. I need to change how I'm living. Thank you. And it's because he was encouraging to me before he corrected me. I want to take a look at verse 10 now. Verse 10 is going to show us why it's not only just unwise, but wicked. Wicked to refuse to receive criticism. And why it's righteous to be open to the correction and criticism from others. So let's take a look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So Solomon repeats this phrase from the first chapter of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what is the fear of the Lord? So the fear of the Lord is having a reverence for God, a love for God, where you see God as bigger and more important than anything else or anyone else. When you think of what making a decision, When you act in a certain way, he's your first consideration. No one or nothing else matters besides him. Now, one way that this trips us up is the word fear. Sounds like terror. And we usually want to get away from what we're afraid of. So why is it using this word fear of the Lord? For starters, we are supposed to have a respect and reverence for God. God is scary. He is powerful. He is vast. He is mighty. Every time he shows up in the Bible, people tremble before him. And so the word fear is right. Because we serve And know a fearsome God. And yet he's good. So when God is revealing himself in the Old Testament, he says, The Lord, the Lord is my name. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So even though God is a fearsome God, because he's so good, church, our greatest need is to be near him. So the fear of the Lord looks like a reference for the greatness of God. But yet, because we know he's good, we draw near to him. It's a reference and a love put together. And the term that Solomon uses is the fear of the Lord. Church, do you fear the Lord? Do you have a reference for him? Do you know you need to be near him? it's terrifying to be apart from him. Is he that important to you? For Solomon, at this point in his life, God was everything. And we're invited to fear him in that way. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Another phrase that's showing us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, wisdom... Is all the ways that we live when we fear the Lord. So if you fear the Lord, you're going to live in a different way. One example the Proverbs use is that if you don't fear the Lord, you're going to live like a fool and you're going to leave your wife and go chase other women. If you fear the Lord, you stay with your wife. Now, what determines if you leave or if you stay? Whether or not you fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom means that our reverence for God works itself out in how we live. If you fear God, you will live in a different way. That's what it means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can trace back from the decisions we make in life to how you respect and feel about God. So what does this have to do with correction? What is the opposite of the fear of the Lord? What is the opposite Take a look at Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord Is hatred of evil Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil Pride and arrogance And the way of evil And perverted speech I hate The opposite of the fear of the Lord Is pride And arrogance This is the reason why Criticism from others feels like a threat Because we're prideful because I'm prideful One pastor put it this way The fear of the Lord Makes you humble before other people If you truly fear God Your pride decreases When someone brings a criticism to you You don't respond How dare you You respond Yeah that makes a lot of sense That makes a lot of sense If there's something wrong that I need to fix You see, when you fear the Lord, criticism is not a threat to you. Because God is what you love most. And when someone criticizes you, it helps you get closer to Him. You see what I'm saying? When someone criticizes you and you fear the Lord, it helps you get closer to Him. If you're prideful, and God's not that important to you, your criticism messes up your self-image. But if you fear the Lord... Your criticism is going to help you get closer to him. And that's why it says, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Because your brother and sister is bringing you closer to God. So when you come to me and say, Ross, your speaking is not godly. You need to change that. You are helping me get closer to God. When you see your brother and sister drinking too much or doing something on the computer they shouldn't, or whatever is going on that is sinful, and you say something that you are helping them get closer to God. This is why the fear of the Lord is underneath how we respond to criticism. How you feel about God, and whether or not He's truly humbled you, will show up, will show up when someone criticizes you. So pay attention to those moments. Verse 11 says, For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. Okay, so this sounds like criticism will increase the years of our life. Rebuke will increase the years of our life. And that may be true. Someone may bring words of correction to you that make you stop doing something that would shorten your life. But one thing we have to do is to read each verse in its context in the Bible. This verse is in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, length of life in the promised land is a sign of spiritual health and vitality. So, this is how it goes. like In the Old Testament, when you're living in the promised land, if they kept the commandments of God and they feared God... Their lives would literally lengthen. God would provide food, protection from enemies. And if they disobeyed God, and if they were prideful, and they worshipped other idols, their lifespan would shorten. So what this verse is saying is that in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord will increase their lifespan the time that they're living in communion with God in the promised land. For us today as New Testament Christians, our lifespans don't necessarily increase or decrease. But our spiritual life is preserved by the fear of the Lord, just as their lives would have been preserved by the fear of the Lord. One thing that so encouraged me when I was reading this is that it doesn't matter if I die young or old. What matters is whether or not I'm still trusting in Jesus when I die. And just as, in this context, rebuke and criticism and correction would preserve the lives of God's people? Your corrections preserve the lives of God's people. Your corrections can help God's people get to heaven. Think about that. Sin is ugly, and like cancer, it grows and metastasizes until it kills people. And when you find cancer and you get it early, you save that person's life. Mm-hmm. And when there's little sins that we're comfortable with in our life, they're always threatening to grow and take over and kill us. Mm-hmm. And when you go and help a brother and sister kill their sin while still small, you are helping them get to heaven. What a task God has given you. What a gift you can be by a word of correction. You allow me to read Hebrews chapter three verse twelve. It says, "Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." The word "exhort" means to urge. And one of the ways that we urge one another is to put our sin to death and to flee from it. One vision of life together is that we're daily urging one another to flee from our sin and trust in Christ. And we're protecting one another and keeping one another. This is how God wants to use us in each other's lives. Verse 12 says, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. this The way you respond to criticism has a lot of positive effects for you, or a lot of harmful effects for you. If you humble yourself or receive criticism, it's going to help you. If you harden your heart and refuse it, it will hurt you. Not only are the lives of other people at stake in how we respond. Your life is. My life is. And I just wanted to conclude by giving us all one word of correction that we all need to hear every day. This is the greatest word of correction that we all need to hear. And that word of correction is that we're all great sinners who need a great Savior. Every last one of us are all great sinners who need a great Savior. And I'm prone to forget that. I'm prone to start living as if I'm my Savior rather than God. And I just want to talk to anyone today who's visiting or listening who has never yet received that word of correction. I have a word of correction for you that I need. And it is so good when you receive it. Because when you receive this word of correction, you finally live. If you can't receive that word of correction, you can't live. But we have received that word of correction, have church? And Jesus has paid the price for us. And we do live. And since he's corrected us for our sin and humbled us to receive that correction, we can now receive his mercy. And every time we correct other people, it's just a picture of the way he corrected us. And it leads others to life, just as he's led us to life. Main point I want us to walk away with today is that the fear of the Lord produces in us a humility that receives instead of rejects the correction of other people. The fear of the Lord produces in us a humility that receives rather than rejects the correction of other people. And may we all walk in that fear together. A fear that loves God because he loves us. Church, let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are so kind to correct us and discipline us and not condemn us. Thank you that you use us as a means of grace to correct one another. God, would you help us all to grow in giving correction and grow in receiving correction by becoming more humble so that when we correct, people know that we love them. And when we are corrected, we know that they could be right because we're sinners. Please, God, shape us more into a family who gives and receives correction well. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ.